0: This morning we're going to turn to the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, why don't you grab that this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. We're coming back to a series that we had started uh, several months ago before the summer, and then we kind of took a little break with all these special things that were happening over the summer months. And we're going to come back into the book of Acts, and I really want to focus in on what are really, in some ways, a pivotal transition set of verses here in Acts chapter 13. As you turn there, the title of the message this morning is Fasting for the Future, Fasting for the Future, and it's week 14 in this broader series that we are in, covering the chapters of 9 to 14 in the book of Acts. So if if you're there, if you have your Bible with you this morning, or if not, it's on the screen behind me, let's look at the first verse, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, we're going to just pause here for a second because I want to refresh us a little bit. It's been a while since we were in the book of Acts, and so maybe your memory needs a little jogging about what we're looking at as we focus in on this church here in Antioch in Syria. This is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's the, the main part as we read through the Gospels and through the early stages of Acts. That's where the death and resurrection of Jesus had taken place. That's where the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost had come. The church had really started there in Jerusalem. Thousands of people came to know Christ and was just building and growing there, and the apostles themselves are, are in Jerusalem, and they're leading and they're teaching the Word of God primarily from kind of a base of operations in Jerusalem. But then as persecution begins to set in, and Saul, who's mentioned here, he's one of the primary persecutors, Right it's after the stoning of Stephen, who's the first martyr, people begin to flee Jerusalem and spread out. And the church begins to grow through these disciples going to other places and talking about Jesus and, and new gatherings of believers starting to take place. And in Acts 11, we read about some of those believers who had fled from persecution, making their way all the way up 300 miles north to this town of Antioch in Syria, which is actually a, a relatively large and important city at that point. And these believers who go there do what believers are called to do everywhere we go, and they just begin sharing the message of Jesus and what He has done and who He is. and Amazingly, what we see in that text, and I brought this out when we were there in the sermons of the series previously was it was just these average everyday believers, right, that that went there and shared about Jesus. There was no big church planting strategy in the first century. No one had sat down with a map and said, okay, where do we need to to reach people to be effective, you know, and spread like Antioch's a strategic location. Let's send people there. No, it was just people who were literally fleeing for their lives made their way to Antioch, and as they're in Antioch said, Well, we got to tell people about Jesus. We see lost people all around us. And so they did. They shared about Jesus, not an apostle, not a church leader, just an everyday person. We don't even know the names of who founded the church in Antioch. And yet, there's a church there because God began to save people as the gospel was shared. And so, you know, I, I think that's an important thing for us to remember, because today, we shouldn't just look at, at that, how the church in Antioch came to be, and go, oh, well, that's, a, that's a nice historical fact, or, oh, thanks, pastor, you reminded me of, of something you, you said in that previous series, you know, that's a, that's a good summary. What we should hear whenever we think about the, how the church in Antioch came to be, as we focus in on the church of Antioch, is this encouragement and this challenge to us today. God uses people like us to do incredible things. Like, through people like you and me just sharing about Jesus, people get saved. Churches get started. Lives are forever altered. That's incredible for us to see. If we believe that and we recognize that, it should create a longing in us to be part of that. Right? Like. Seeing the church expand, seeing people come to faith is not just a task given to a few certain people. It is the result of faithful, everyday people who's, like you and me, whose names may never be known in history beyond now. It comes from us sharing the gospel. That should be something we long to be a part of. Again, looking at Acts 11, we, we find out some more about Antioch. We find that Barnabas was sent there by the apostles when they learned about all those new believers that were coming to faith up there. And that was an amazing thing too, right? If you remember that when we talked about that in a previous sermon, Barnabas, well, Barnabas is the guy sent there, but he's not just kind of some guy from the Jerusalem church, right? He is a man who's incredibly generous, the scripture tells us. He's very godly, and he is fully committed to the cause of Christ, In fact, the name Barnabas isn't his real name, right? His real name is Joseph. He's just called Barnabas as his nickname because that means son of encouragement. That's what this guy was. He was an encourager. He was a guy who built up other people, constantly was serving others so that they would grow. He was not in any way a proud, jealous guy looking to build his own platform, feeling like I got to get out of Jerusalem so I can go somewhere. This was just a guy who wanted to serve others. And the apostle said, you are the man we need in Antioch. And so they, they sent him there. You know, some people, some of you even, get really worked up when your favorite sports team trades a really good player from the team, right? Like I've, I've heard, you know, I can't believe they get rid of so-and-so or whatever. You know, how are we going to make it next year, Right? Barnabas is like one of those great players, right? He's, he's not just like a rookie who's kind of getting shuffled around a little bit. Maybe he'll be good one day, but for now we're going to trade him to get some, some salary cap. No, this is like a starting lineup guy, top-tier Christian in Jerusalem. And they said, Barnabas, you, you, you're the guy. We've got to send you to Antioch. I mean, everyone would feel the impact of that in the Jerusalem church, Right? It was a sacrifice for them to make, but they willingly made it because they cared so much about seeing the believers 300 miles north of them, who most people in Jerusalem would never go up and meet. They cared about them enough to send them someone, to train them, to lead them, to help them grow in the knowledge of who Jesus was and all that Jesus did. And so Barnabas went up there to Antioch and and he lives up to the name. He just dedicates himself to being an encourager, to building up the church, to teaching these new believers. And the Lord keeps blessing all this work in Antioch and keeps growing the church. And so Barnabas, again, he's he's not a kind of guy who's like, you know, look at how great I am. Look at how Antioch has become so great under my leadership. And he just recognizes, man, God's blessing this place. You know what? We need more help. We need more leaders. And so it's Barnabas himself who goes up to Tarsus to recruit Saul. The same Saul who had been the greatest enemy of the church, but who was radically converted on the road to Damascus, who's now living in Tarsus, his hometown, because the Jewish people are so upset by Paul's conversion that they want to kill him, right? And so they tried to in Damascus, they tried to in Jerusalem, so he's hiding in Tarsus. It's been a few years, and now Barnabas goes to him and says, hey, come to Antioch with me. Come help me lead the church. Help me pastor these these people. And so that's what they do. Barnabas and Saul together are there in Antioch teaching the church, seeing even more growth take place there. And eventually, we we find out as we get to this verse, that meant God raised up more pastors, more leaders. And these other three men that are mentioned in the text are serving alongside Barnabas and Saul as the pastors of this church in Antioch. And one other thing we know about Antioch, again to, to refresh your memory, is that in Antioch, that's the place that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. I love that. I love that that is one of the things Antioch has to its credit. Because in Antioch, what was happening was people were trying to insult the followers of Jesus with this phrase, Christians. I mean, the Christians just kept talking about this one that they followed, this person they believed in, who they were worshiping as their God. They kept saying over and over again the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And so these people started saying, Well, you're just little Christ. You're just imitators of this Christ. And they were mocking them with this name, Christian. And yet, they took that as a badge of honor. See, it's, it's kind of funny to me because the Gentiles in Antioch were, were like a lot of people today who just may not have understood this because they didn't understand the, the language difference. They thought that Christ was this guy's last name. Some people today are still shocked to learn his first name wasn't Jesus, last name Christ. <laughs> his name is Jesus. If you would have given him a surname, it would have been Bar-Jonah, son of, jo- uh, son of Jonah. But he was Jesus, the Christ. The Messiah, say Jonah, Joseph, Bar Joseph, son of Joseph. (laughs) Saw some weird looks, sorry. (laughs) Christ is a title. It's, It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, the word Messiah, which means anointed one. When someone says Jesus Christ, they're saying Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised long, long ago to the Israel people to be their Savior. It's a declaration of who Jesus is, not just his name. And so when the believers in Antioch hear others naming Christ and calling them Christians, they're saying, yeah, that's at the heart of what we believe, that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the one who came to deliver us, to meet our deepest needs. They just wore the name as a badge of honor. I hope that for, for you in this room, when you think of who Jesus is and what it means that you would say, I am a Christian, you're thinking about the deeper things of the meaning of that word. That you're thinking, yes, as I say that I'm a Christian, what I mean by that is I'm affirming and trying to declare to other people that I believe Jesus is the one who is my Savior. He is the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. He's the one who came anointed from God to deal with sin, to carry my sin upon the cross. When I say Christian, it's not just a title I take on for a political affiliation on a form or religious identifier. No, I say Christian because I am proclaiming he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, my Savior. If you don't think of those things, if you don't know Jesus in that way, then really nothing else I say today is going to make a lot of sense to you. Because you, if you don't understand who Jesus is, You are not going to be compelled to do the things that we're seeing from this text that we'll talk about from this text. But today is a day you can come to, to know Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah. This is a day you can lay down everything else and respond to who he is and receive the blessings of what he has accomplished through his sacrificial death. I would love for that to be your story today. Finally, one last thing I want to mention from Acts 11 about Antioch is that as we follow the flow of the story, the most important place for the church up to this point, like I said, was really the city of Jerusalem. But as the stories begin to unfold, we start to see there's probably going to be a change that takes place. People are fleeing Jerusalem. We're seeing more and more activity occur outside of Jerusalem. And so by the time you reach chapter 13 and these first few verses, you think, oh, we're focusing in now on Antioch. Antioch is probably going to become the new center of Christianity. And in Acts 13.1, you're given this kind of all-star lineup, right, of these prophet teachers, as they're called, here in Antioch. We've been told that the church is growing greatly. We've been told all these amazing things are taking place in Antioch. And so it's natural to expect, okay, Antioch is going to become the new Jerusalem, if you will, as the focal point of the church's life in this area. But then we read this. Look at verse number 2. Now, while they, these leaders that we just read about, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. (laughs) Now, a a few things I want us to unpack here, because I want us to see what they were doing and not doing, and then I want to to propose a suggestion on why they were doing that that's very relevant to us, and then I want to to make an application to us. So first, I I want you to notice this. What they were doing was, the text says, worshiping the Lord and fasting. These were men who were focused upon God, right? And what happens here when the Holy Spirit speaks to them and tells them of what he has in plan, it really didn't happen just out of the blue, right? God spoke and gave direction to them when they were focused on seeking him. They were being intentional. They were fasting, giving up meal times and the nourishment of food to, to go and pray and seek the Lord instead, right? This, this statement that the Holy Spirit spoke to them and gave them this instruction, it didn't just happen in the midst of everyday life for them. It didn't happen while they were watching TV, while they were attending a sports game, well, they were, you know, we're doing the, the household work, reviewing the budget, or, or selecting groceries, or any other regular activity that they may have done. This was a time they had set aside to seek God and his leading, and that is when God spoke to them. So secondly, I, I want to suggest that this was probably one of the things I think that they were praying and seeking God about. Where do we go as a church? What, what do you have for us as a people here in Antioch, Lord, what's, what's next? And I say that because of all the things I see here in the text. Think with me for, for just a moment about what we see in response to what God says. Think, think with me for just a moment about these other three guys from the text. Here they are, all five of them, they're together, they're fasting over a mealtime, they're praying together, Lord, what do you have for the future of us? And God speaks. Set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. A different work that I'm calling them to. Now, if you're those other three guys, you're thinking, Barnabas and Saul? (laughs) Like, they're the two most influential guys we've got, right? They're They're the best of the best. You've got Barnabas, the great encourager, And you've got Saul, the brilliant teacher who was trained by the best rabbi of the day, who had been converted so radically from the greatest enemy of the church to now one of the greatest leaders of the church in Antioch. I mean, this is a big deal for God to say, set these two guys aside. I'm going to take them to go do work somewhere else. But we notice the response in verse 3 is that then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, I think the response shows they must have been seeking God for what it is he wanted them to do next. Because when he told them what he wanted done next, they responded with obedience. They they may have been shocked, Lord, really? We gotta give up Saul and Barnabas? Sure, you don't just want one? Maybe maybe Saul and Menaeon? <laughs> like, you want both these guys. I think they were asking what is next, and when God said this is what's next, they said, okay, it'll be difficult. It'll be a struggle. I don't know what we're going to do here. You know, none of us have the, the recognition these two guys have, but Lord, if that's what you want for us, we'll respond. And they do so. So I think that's part of why they had to have been praying about what God wanted them to do as a church. And secondly, I think it's just, it's from my own experience, and I'll, I'll grant that. But as a pastor, I am often praying for God to reveal and make clear his plan for the church that I'm leading especially when I have seasons of focused, intense times of prayer and fasting. I may be praying and fasting for a specific need, but that that tends to almost always broaden out to, Lord, lead us as a people. And what do you have for us? What do you want us to do? That's a question I'm constantly asking. I think that's a question most faithful pastors are asking in these times of prayer. So I, I think that this must have been part at least of what they were praying for, what they were fasting over, and God gave them a clear answer. Set aside Barnabas and Saul to a new work. So the church responds in faith. Okay, Lord, we will send them, and we will trust you are going to provide for us, and you're going to meet our needs here in Antioch once Saul and Barnabas are, are gone. So in these first three verses here in Acts chapter 13, we find instead of the church at Antioch becoming the new center of focus, Antioch becomes a place of sending, responsible for sending out the first formal missionaries of the church. Rather than Antioch aiming, okay, Lord, what do we do to become the biggest church? Lord, what do we do to draw more of the other leaders here? How about we become the new center of the faith? How about we build a big facility, Lord? Will you bless that that endeavor? Instead, they obediently decide we're going to be a supporting church, a giving church, and we're going to send our two top guys out to spread the gospel We will sacrifice financially to make it happen. We're going to put budget in going instead of building so that the gospel of Jesus can spread even farther than their city. I think Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, really are pivotal moments in the history of the Christian movement. But I want us, instead of moving forward in the narrative this morning, which which we'll do next week as we continue in the series, I want us to step backwards for just a second to verse 2, And I want us to look at and I want us to feel a challenge coming from the example of what we see happening here in Antioch before God made clear what his plans were for the future of the church there in Antioch. And then broadly, as Saul and Barnabas will have such incredible impact on the world as a whole. Look at verse 2 again. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Back at the at the start of this year, I, I had felt, as I was praying about the year and about where we were going and, and what the Lord wanted for our church, I felt a real longing in my spirit to, to set aside some times of specific focus for our church to seek God for the future of our church. And so I laid out the calendar in front of me when I was feeling this, and I was looking at all of this whole year kind of laid out and saying, okay, Lord, where, where do we want to put this in? Where, where does this fit? But I didn't sense him leading me to, to really schedule this in anywhere in, in the spring. And so I said, okay, Lord, I'll we'll just continue to wait and pray and, and seek you for the right timing. And then the summer kind of came up on us, and I'm, I'm asking, Lord, is it in the summer months here that we want to do this? And I felt, no, that there's other things that the Lord was leading us to do throughout the summer. And so, okay, that's not the right moment. We'll continue to wait and pray. And as I've come back now to this text and back into Acts, this last quarter of the year, I feel like this is the moment the Lord had put in my heart all those months ago, this is the right moment for us to have a focused period of seeking the Lord just as these men in Antioch did. As we see in the text, they were intentional, right, to seek the Lord through focused worship, prayer, and fasting, and I think the Lord is inviting us into a season, a period of time just like that. And I've been really careful as I have thought about this and really for months now I have been prayerfully considering this message and what this uh, would mean for us and how the Lord is calling us to do this. Because I don't take lightly what I'm going to ask us to do as a church. Back in in 2021, at the start of of that year, if you remember, I preached a a series of sermons uh, in a series we called Devoted, Finding Joy in the Spiritual Disciplines. We talked about different practices to incorporate into our life in order to pursue God and pursue the joy of a deep relationship with God. The seventh sermon in that series was on the topic of, of fasting. And I tried to lay out there what biblical fasting really is. I explained how in this era that we live in now, Jesus had told uh, the people that, that in this time period after he's died and ascended into heaven, and we're still here now on the earth living out this mission, that his people will fast during this time. Fasting, as I said then and would remind you of now, it's not just an Old Testament practice. It's not even presented by Jesus as an optional practice that, well, a couple people, they'll be the fasting people in every generation, and then everyone else, you know, kind of like leaves that alone. He says his people expansively, including all of us, will fast at times in this era that we now live in. And so in that series, I, I tried to bring that out, and I tried to bring out a, a balance to some of the errors that people have around fasting, how sometimes what we think is when we think about spiritual disciplines or we think about unique spiritual uh, activities like fasting and other things, we, we think, well, if I just do the act, then that's enough, right? Like God's pleased with just the mechanics of me doing a certain thing over and over again. But actually, the Bible tells us very clearly God condemns that type of behavior. He's not impressed by empty religious rituals, like at all. (laughs) He tells people, if you're just doing this without a heart engaged, without a mind really set on me, without really intending it to be worship of me, just stop doing it. See, this is one of the problems that that we have with the Roman Catholic Church and how they mandate fasting during the season of Lent, right? Some of you have experience with that. Maybe you've grown up in that type of context or seen that. For many Roman Catholics, that whole period of fasting during Lent is really just a ritual they hold to the letter of without understanding the spirit behind it. So, Roman Catholics will will give up something during the season of Lent, and they have all this freedom to choose whatever they want to give up, right? So some give up chocolate, some give up wine, some give up TV, some give up whatever it is. they, They give that up for a period of time, but what often is the case is they don't replace the time they would have spent doing those other things with seeking the Lord, with more prayer, with focusing on Jesus. It's just, well, God's pleased that I didn't have chocolate for 40 days. The reality is God could care less if you had chocolate for 40 days if you don't see him. So the abuses and the shallowness of how some people have practiced things like fasting has led to many people just neglecting spiritual disciplines altogether. I mean, that's true of all the spiritual disciplines. We see abuses of it, we see extremes of it, and we think, well that's wrong, and so instead of trying to find the balance and how to actually practice those things in a way that glorify God, we just throw them all out. We're not going to do any of them, right? So some Christians never fast. Some Christians never find times of solitude and silence to be with the Lord. Some Christians don't pray as often as we should. We don't search and study the scriptures regularly like we're called to. We don't live intentionally as good stewards of our time and our resources and so on and and so on. We just throw all of it out under the guise of, well, some people do it wrong instead of finding the right way to actually do it. So my whole point in that that sermon series on the spiritual disciplines was to challenge us to incorporate rightly these things into our Christian life because there's joy, there's blessing, there's growth to be had from them. And so even on that sermon on fasting, I was encouraging you begin to develop a practice of fasting personally in your life. Find a time, find a meal to begin with, and start to work this into how you pursue God. Set aside food, set aside the time that you would have spent preparing food and eating that food, and pray. Be with the Lord so that you can experience the joy, the benefits of intentionally pursuing God. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to encourage us to do more than just personally practice something. I'm going to call on our church body as a whole, all of us together, to intentionally join together in a time of fasting and praying for our church to seek God's clear leading and clear growth of us as a body over the next several weeks. So I want to be be really transparent with you this morning, and I want to to share kind of the heart behind this um, outside of this particular passage. Over the last year, which if you've been a part of our church through the last year, you know it's been a, a, a difficult year. It's been filled with some challenges But over that last year, there's been a passage of scripture that has been regularly running through my heart and through my thoughts, and I really do believe it's been from the Lord since a year and a half ago, when things started to kind of get difficult. The text is from John chapter 15, it's the first two verses. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. It's this last part here of verse 2 that I really believe is what God's been doing in our church over the last year. Notice, he says, the branch that does bear fruit, God prunes. As a church, I think we have borne good fruit in this place for a long time. In fact, this year, if you didn't know, this is our 99th year from the founding of this church. Next year is our 100-year celebration. and We're going to take time through several things next year to celebrate and look back on all the fruit that God has caused to grow and develop here at Nelsonville over the span of 100 years. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. Just in the last few years, if we were to think back about something that most of us can can relate to experiences we've shared together, since just 2018, we've seen God Bringing good fruit to bear here. We've seen 14 people saved as a part of the ministry of this church here in this church. We've celebrated 21 baptisms here in this very room. As a pastor, I've gotten to see maybe some more of the fruit developing in personal lives than others would be aware of. But I've seen many of you grow in substantial ways in Christ over the last several years. You've faced difficulties and challenges and drawn closer to Christ rather than run farther from God. I've seen many people in this room begin to overcome sin and struggles that maybe have been part of their life for a really, really long time. I've been so encouraged to see many people move from from being stagnant in their faith, just yes, I I go to church and I kind of got my rituals down and do that, to actually move to having a real vibrant relationship with the Lord. There is real good fruit that is being produced here in Nelsonville through this church, and as a church, further, I believe that as a body, we are abiding in Christ. We are committed to remaining in him, to standing firm on solid doctrine and practices that glorify him. So if that's true, if we're, if we're aiming to abide in Christ and we're producing good fruit, we're one of those branches, then Jesus tells us plainly what to expect in that text, doesn't he? And I believe it's what we've experienced A a branch that bears fruit will be pruned by God. Now, seeing that in a text and reading the words of Jesus, man, that's easy, right? Living through a pruning process is really difficult and uncomfortable because it hurts, right? When something's getting cut off. We don't think about that with the tomato plant. We just chop off the leaves. No big deal. Move on, you know? But when it's the body of Christ, when it's us, when we're the branch, we feel that pruning work as a difficult work. But I think it really does help us. It gives so much peace to my soul as I think about these things to see the purpose for which God's doing it. It's right there in the text. He says, he will prune that it may bear more fruit. He doesn't do the pruning work because he's tired of us. It's not the end of the season. He's yanking us up out of the ground. He's pruning us. He's cultivating us so that there is more fruit that is born. That's the divine purpose of pruning, that the branch, us as a church, would bear more fruit. So knowing that and reminding myself of that when sometimes I question, Lord, are you sure? <laughs> pruning hurts. What's the purpose again? Knowing that has shaped my prayers and my personal time of seeking the Lord for our church body all throughout this last year. And that's what I want to call us towards as a church body all together now. So here's, here's the call specifically. I want, to, I want to make this as tangible for us as possible. Over the month of September, I want to ask you to consider and join in, if you are able, to setting aside extra times of prayer, asking God to lead our church forward. Asking God, what do you have for us? How can we align ourselves to be best on mission with you, Lord? I want to ask you to do that through fasting one to two meals a week. The days and the meals I'm going to ask you to do this, the days and the meals I'm going to be doing this, are on Thursdays. Thursday morning and Thursday afternoon all throughout the months of September. So that means on the 8th, the 15th, the 22nd, and the 29th, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to call for you to join together in setting aside breakfast and lunch and giving over that time to prayer and seeking the Lord. Thursday is not just an arbitrary day <laughs> that I chose. I felt like the Lord leading us to that for a particular purpose. Part of it is this. On Wednesday night, if we're fasting just these two months, Wednesday night you're going to have dinner like you normally would. And Thursday night, you get to have dinner like you normally would. We're talking about just two meals to, to fast and pray during, the breakfast and lunch meal. And part of the reason I felt like the Lord was putting this timing here right before us is that if we practice this in the month of September and give these two particular meals up, then for those of you who are getting ready to start back into your small groups, have the opportunity to do this in community together. So Wednesday night, you're going you're to get together for small group. And there's likely going to be snacks because I don't think we ever get together outside of here without snacks. So there's probably going to be a little bit of food. And and enjoy that. Eat that. Talk. Study the Bible together. But then before you leave, knowing, okay, after I've had my dinner this night, Wednesday night, I'm not going to eat tomorrow morning or tomorrow at lunch. I'm going to fast and pray during those times. So before you leave small group, as a group, pray for one another in that. Ask the Lord to give all the people in the group the strength to do that. The, the memory to remember when they wake up in the morning, I can't grab breakfast, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast and pray. And pray together as a group for this same thing, that the Lord would bless, the Lord would lead, the Lord would guide us as a church. So, so Wednesday night, we get to kind of kick off going into those two meals of fasting and praying as a group, as a body of believers. And listen, I know there are some of you that are in this room that you, maybe you can't fast those two meals because of schedules, because of health issues, because of some other thing. Moms who are nursing, you, maybe you can't fast. You most totally get that, and that's okay. Don't feel shame because of that. Don't feel pressure to fast if there's a, a real reason you can't, but a, a real reason that you can't. Not just, I don't like the fast. <laughs> I get hungry. <laughs> that's not a good enough reason. If there's a real reason you can't fast, that's fine. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel pressure from me. But I would ask you, if you can't fast during those times, would you find some other time to set aside for prayer? for this topic, asking the Lord to bless and lead this church. Maybe, it's, maybe for you it means I'm going to give up watching a show or a sporting event or say no to some optional activity on the calendar. Or, or maybe it's, hey, I, you know, I'm in the car a long time and normally I'm going to flip on the radio or listen to something, but I'm going to set aside that time instead. I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek God. Would you find some other time, if you can't fast breakfast and lunch on Thursdays, would you find some other time to join us in praying over these things? I think as a church if we do this then the Lord will answer and the Lord will lead. Not not because he's so impressed by the fact that we can give up two meals, right? It's not about the ritual, it's about the heart. And I feel like our church is at a place right now where your heart is very much like my heart is. We want to hear from God. We want him to lead us forward. We want to bear fruit, more fruit than we have borne. I don't want to look back and go, man, Nelsonville was awesome for 99 years of its history, and then we kind of just coasted along till Jesus came back. I want us to say, we bore fruit. Praise God. Look at all the fruit of these years past, and then we bore more fruit. That's my prayer. I think that's the prayer of many in this room, and so I want us to, to join together and seek the face of the Lord. One final thought about Antioch and our church along those lines as we'll prepare to respond this morning, worship team, if you'll come and begin to lead us in our final song. I found it fascinating as I was looking at the church in Antioch, they were not seeking and praying and fasting because they needed to survive, right? Like there was no crisis moment in Antioch where it all seems lost, Lord, you know, it wasn't like Saul and Barnabas came and said, hey guys, we're out, you know, we're leaving, and then the church began to fast and pray, Lord, what do we do? They were proactively praying to know what God would lead them to in the future, not just to survive. They wanted to thrive. So our church, we're not, we're not facing a crisis moment here either. Like We're not coming to this moment, God, please sustain Nelsonville. We're on the brink of, of disaster and all's going to be gone. No, we've, we've been bearing fruit. We've been growing. We've been blessed just in this last year in the midst of the difficulties to move forward in great ways in our mission. The Lord's enabled us to accomplish things that have been part of our heart for, for years. And in this last year, we've, we've seen those things come to pass. The Lord's working among us. He's leading us forward in step-by-step ways. We want us to just step back, recognize that, and say, Lord, we want, we want to make sure we're really on track here. And, and that's the goal. We have great, got, we've got great momentum to head into the future, but we don't want to head into the future without the Lord's leading and guidance in that. We don't want to do anything in our own. John 15 is really clear. You can't do any, we can't do anything on our own. If we get disconnected from him and start growing our own way, we're not going to have real growth at all. So we want to bear more fruit. We want to be an active participant in the work of God in this world. So I'm going to pray and ask just for the Lord to begin to stir up our hearts right now, for our wills to be strengthened, and our resolve. Because maybe right now you're thinking, yep, I'm going to do that, but then Thursday's going to roll around, and you're going to think, man, I'm hungry. (laughs) So I'm going to pray the Lord would give us strength, resolve that would continue beyond the doors and beyond this day, throughout all this month, that we would be faithful to fast and pray and seek the Lord together in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message, Lord, and this call that you are extending to us through the example of the church in Antioch. As we dig into scripture, Lord, I'm always amazed at at just how much is there. That for for three verses, Lord, that that are really transitionatory verses in a text, there's, there's some way that you're speaking to us in this very moment as your people. And so, Lord, I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room, for the people that are part of this church family, Lord, that that you would begin to just cause our hearts to to be stirred, Lord, in a way that would be a genuine desire for more of you, for a clear sense of your leading, for for the, the path forward that we would bear good fruit for years to come, Lord. Help us have resolve for that. Help our wills be strengthened, Lord. I pray that you would give us a mind to do this and then the strength to see it through all throughout this month as we will fast and we will pray and we will seek you. We thank you for the time to even begin that now, Lord. To come into these altars and to, to lay down things that may hinder us, to lay down concerns and burdens that we're carrying and just and be with you. Thank you for the gift of this time to do that as we end this service. May our hearts remain engaged. May we not pull back. May we not miss this moment to be made ready by you for what lies ahead for us. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.